Amen. Thank you, Chris. Um, I'm so pleased to be here today. I really am. I've been looking forward to this for weeks and weeks and weeks. And uh, thank you, Chris, to you and Victoria for inviting me to be here. Looking forward to lunch afterwards. I hear you. It's going to be good. Um, yeah. And I'm also delighted that so many people that we've known for many years have found a home in this amazing church because, you know, sometimes people lose the direction of travel and they end up nowhere. You know, the guys that we know that you, that you found a home in this church, I am so, so pleased because this is one awesome church. You found a great home to be part of. Well done. Now, Jenny and I have been married for 42 years. We were having a bit of review of our marriage yesterday. Let <laughs> me say that wasn't a straightforward conversation, okay. It took most of the day. We've got, Jenny said, four daughters, eight grandchildren, uh, and we absolutely love this city. I came, we came here in 91, and uh, that dream of seeing our city transformed by the gospel, through a movement of missionary disciples. That just grips me. And the same vision that God put on my heart as a 19-year-old 44 years ago grips me today. The thought that God would transform a place, transform our lives first, and through us transform the place where he puts us. I'm so pleased that same dream is being embodied in this particular church. And you as individuals have a opportunity to be part of that. I'm so delighted to be amongst friends today. I feel very welcome. It's like a home from home. So thank you for welcoming me today. Now, there's certain things that our culture is very consumed with. And I would say one of those things is the pursuit of happiness. Would you agree with me that there is a People are absolutely consumed with the pursuit of happiness. And many of you will remember the film with um, Will Smith and his son Jaden in, who are living out the, the life of Chris Gardner, who was a homeless person for a year and made his way to successful uh, stockbroker. It's a very moving, touching film. But the pursuit of happiness, it's that idea that is embodied in this film, that everybody is in pursuit of happiness. It's even in embedded in the American Constitution. You know, the the uh, the Declaration of Independence talks about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is those inalienable rights given to us by God himself, our creator. Whether you believe in that or not, doesn't matter. It really is something that consumes everybody. And even if we as Christians think we live these great sacrificial lives, actually, the little choices we make are all most often about the pursuit of happiness. And I want to, and there's nothing wrong with that, because God gave us a life to live. He gave us uh, the freedom to enjoy all that he's created. And Jesus said we were to live an abundant life, a life that is full and rich. And so there's nothing wrong with being in pursuit of happiness, unless it becomes a God in its own right, an idol in itself, rather than the byproduct of seeking the one who is most important and the life that he gives us. But I want to touch this morning on a few thoughts as to how this life God does actually want to give us. Now, the Bible has a particular word for happiness. It has a its own unique word for happiness. Anybody know what that word is? 
Not a trick question. Joy indeed, yes. Wherever that came from, thank you. The Bible speaks a lot about joy. There's a particular book in the New Testament that is sometimes called the book of joy. Anybody know what that book is? Philippians, spot on, yes, the book of Philippians. The word joy and rejoice are mentioned so many times in that book. Let me read you a few of those scriptures. I always, Paul says, I always pray with joy. He says, and by whatever motive Christ is preached, because of this I rejoice. I will continue to rejoice. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind. Rejoice in the Lord. My brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. And finally, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. It's a book that is full of joy. And if you want to dig deeper into this whole idea of what it means to have a life that is full of joy, then uh, read through the book of Philippians. Highlight all those words, rejoice and joy, and ask God to speak to you through it. Now, there are two pitfalls that we tend to fall into as Christians when we think about joy. One is uh, that we, we imagine that we're on this continual ecstatic plane of, you know, we're smiling 24-7 and, you know, we just feel immense pleasure all the time. You know, this, the, and suddenly when we come crashing down, we go, oh, maybe I'm not a Christian anymore. Maybe I'm getting it wrong. What's gone wrong with my life? And we have a bit of a downer day. Nobody lives on that plane all the time, do they? Is anybody living on that plane all the time? Please come and tell me how you're doing it. If it's not with illegal substances, I'm keen to know, okay? <laughs> But the other pitfall that we fall in, like the two ditches of joy, like one ditch is the joy of unrealistic ecstasy, and the other ditch is joy so deep that nobody can see it, okay? <laughs> that deep, deep joy that Christians talk about but never actually reaches their face. Have you ever come across Christians who experience that kind of joy, talk about that joy? You know, sometimes joy needs to find an expression, doesn't it? And so we can fall into one of those two camps, but I hope that uh, I can just give a few pointers today in the few minutes that we've got that will help us live a joy-filled life. Because, you know, who wants to live a miserable life? Anybody want to live a miserable No, we don't, do we? We want a joy-filled life. And there is a way to live a joy-filled life. As I get older, I think more and more about actually, you know, enjoying life. Uh, rather than enduring life. You know, some people are in that mindset, you know, life is to be endured. But actually, life is to be enjoyed. God has given us a life to be enjoyed. And as we focus on the right things and engage in the right kind of activities, we will be filled with joy. In fact, one of the keys to living a joy-filled life is to do those things that lead to joy. Because there are certain behaviors that lead to joy. There are other things that block it. And I want to touch on three things that block joy, three joy blockers, and four things that lead to joy, four joy builders. I'm really only giving the headlines today. 
Um, it's about seven sermons in one here, so you just have got to make a few notes and dig deeper, talk about it. We're going to give you a little task to talk about at the end, so have a little listen because I want you to answer the question at the end of this talk, what is it that struck you, okay? So it's a kind of way of saying what's God saying to you, but without making it quite sound quite so spiritual. What struck you, okay, as I'm talking? Because I'm hoping and I'm praying that God is speaking to all of us. So, three joy blockers. Incidentally, did you know that when the um, when the Catholic Church makes somebody a saint, one of the things that they look for in that person's life is it's written down, proof of joy, okay? So to be a saint, you have to have proof of joy in your life. And maybe for us as, as living saints today, God says, you know, I'm looking for proof of joy in your life. And of course we know that joy doesn't depend on our circumstances. It cannot depend on our circumstances. So many of us live with very difficult circumstances. <clears throat> you know, life is not easy, it's not straightforward, which is why... James says in James 1-2, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. It seems you know, counterintuitive, doesn't it, that we would be able to do that. But God so longs that we would find joy even in the most difficult circumstances. So it's not circumstance dependent. Let's kind of nail that one from the beginning. You know, we, we may be carrying all sorts of difficult things in our lives today. Joy can supplant and surmount all of those things. But here are the three joy breakers. First of all, anxiety. You'll notice that I like alliteration, okay? Because if things all start with the same letter, it must be God, all right? Okay. So it's just one of my little quirks, I'm afraid. I love things that start with the same letter. So three, three joy breakers, okay? First of all, anxiety. You know, anxiety robs you. Of the joy that God wants you to enjoy, to experience. Because when we're anxious about things, what does it do? It totally preoccupies our mind. You know, occasionally I wake up in the middle of the night and I've got anxious thoughts in my head. Anybody else experience that? You know, because in the background, so the programs running behind the ones we're aware of are these things we're anxious about. And if they don't ever get out in the daytime, they come out in the night because that's when we're getting reprogrammed. Anxiety robs us of joy. Jesus said Satan comes to steal. And he wants to steal your joy. He wants to rob it from you by planting anxious thoughts in your mind. And of course, the answer is obvious. It's easy to say. It's actually quite hard to do. The answer is to trust God. I have a friend who's from Singapore, and Jack and Sheila know them very well, and she uh, she and her husband have planted churches all around the world, but every so often she will ring up, Pastor Nick, speak to me, speak to me. And uh, so we go through what the latest trauma and crisis is. I'm sure Jack and Sheila have had plenty of these phone calls. Uh, and, and June is the most amazing woman, okay? She is incredible. But occasionally something grips her mind, some terror-filled imagination of what the future might look like. And the end of every conversation, I tell you, over... 20, 30 years of these conversations with June, I always finish with the same thing. June, first of all, do what your husband says, because he's normally right. <laughs> I'm not saying that's true of everybody, okay? Just just in their situation, all right? It's, it's true, though, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. 
And secondly, my final words are, June, trust God. Trust God. Because whatever the thing you're anxious about, God's bigger. He's greater. He's above it all. He can bring even the most difficult things together for good, as Romans tells us. We have no need to live in anxiety. You know, what, what are we going to wear? What are we, how are we going to provide for tomorrow? How are we going to help our kids through this difficult circumstance? God is our provider. He's always working with us and he never, ever leaves us. Never. Anxiety. Second thing is anger. Anybody here ever been angry? Angry? Perhaps <clears throat> not so easy to admit that one. You know, I get angry at times. I get really angry at times. And uh, when I go angry, I go silent. So whenever I'm quiet in the house, Jenny knows to watch out, okay? Don't poke me when I'm quiet, all right? It doesn't bring out the best reaction. But anger robs us of joy. It robs us because we're consumed with this thing, this offense that we've taken. And so often it is offense-related. You know, we've, we've got upset with someone, you know, they nicked our parking spot, you know, they didn't say hello to me this morning, or, you know, something, you did something really trivial, and we just get upset and angry, and we're offended, and we're resentful. That anger is robbing us, and, you know, it's robbing our relationship of being an enjoyable relationship, but it's robbing me, robbing me of the joy that God wants me to experience. And, you know, the, the answer to anger, again, it's incredibly simple, but hard to do. And it's, what's the, what's the answer? Forgiveness. It's to forgive. How many times are we meant to forgive? Well, Jesus said 70 times 7. In other words, an infinite number. Well, because we have been forgiven so much. Who, who here has been forgiven lots? Yeah. Well, we've been forgiven much. We can also forgive others. And it, it can start with a cold-blooded, teeth-gritting choice to forgive that just needs, I forgive you, okay? Even if it's just before God, Lord, I forgive them. You know, gradually as we rehearse that forgiveness, the anger will start to dissipate. And we will start to rediscover God's joy. Anger is the second area, the second joy blocker. The third joy blocker is what I've called alternatives. The alternatives to joy that we fill our lives with. You know, whether it's for comfort or for pleasure or for thrills, there are so many things the world offers us today which are the alternatives to God's joy in our lives. And when we fill our lives with those alternatives, there's no room for joy. In fact, we become numb to God's joy. You know, it could be harmless things, that things that aren't in themselves wrong. Things like shopping. Things like eating. Things like TV box sets. You know, but those things, we can start to so fill our lives with those things because they give us this sort of temporary hit of pleasure that actually we, we are pushing the joy that God wants to give us out when we become numb to his joy. Or it could be more sinister things. Things that we can become truly addicted to, like alcohol, pornography, or dare I even say it, social media. Okay. You know, I am a Luddite. I live in the post-social media generation. I hate Facebook with a passion. Amen. <laughs> 
You know, but it's there and it's useful and God uses it as well. But, you know, some people spend all of their time living gratuitously through other people's experience on social media. Or, worse still, they're always comparing themselves with someone else, thinking, I'm not having as much fun as them. My life isn't as good as them. And they're being robbed of that joy. These alternatives to joy rob us and numb us to the real joy. So what are the, what are the four things that bring joy? And it, it may not come as any surprise to you, it's not rocket science, but actually if we will learn to practice these things, and I believe God is speaking to us this morning, if we will learn to practice these things, our joy will be full. You know Jesus prayed in Gethsemane that our joy would be full? He wants it to be full, overflowing, a joy-filled life. Who wants a joy-filled life? I do. I know I'm a whole lot more pleasant to be around when I'm joy-filled, aren't I, Jen? Certainly are, she says. Joy is such a great thing. It's like the lubricant of life. It's brilliant. So what are the four joy bringers? Number one, for the sake of alliteration, I've called it positivity, all right? So we're going with P's here, okay? Positivity. But it's all to do with how you think and how you look at the world. And you can either look at the world, world through a half-empty glass or a half Full glass. It's a choice. You're not hardwired like that. Okay. So, I, as a as a teenager, I figured out that part of my personality was a bit melancholic. You know what melancholic means? It means prone to a little bit of sadness or depression, or you know, generally looking at uh, feeling a bit sorry for myself. Anybody ever felt like that? No, I'm sure you haven't. Okay. You know, and I. So for me. That's a little bit of, you know, if I drift away from focused, being focused on God and the life he's given me, I can drift back towards that way of being and living, and it's, it's not a good place to be, really. But actually, God wants to transform the way we think. Okay, Romans 12.2, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, which is what you'll do if you spend all your life on social media. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed. That's such a powerful word. Be transformed. By what? The renewing of your mind. When our minds are renewed, our life is transformed. I love what this verse goes on to say. It says, in order that you may prove that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, one of my little things I love to do is to look at the Greek words and figure out what's the richer meaning behind that Greek word, which I did for these three words, good, acceptable, and perfect. What they mean is this. So good also means pleasant, joy-filled, or joyful. It means happy. You know, happy is not a bad word. That we may prove that the will of God, and when we say they prove, it's proved by testing, proved by experience. We prove that it's good. The will of God is good, pleasant, joy-filled, and joyful and happy. It's acceptable, which also means well-pleasing and agreeable. It's perfect, which also means complete and wanting nothing. It'd be great to wake up in the morning thinking, wow. My life is wanting for nothing. That would be a great place to be, wouldn't it? 
And when we realize that's what our life is like, because we've proved it, because our mind's been renewed, we're now seeing life through God's positive lens of all the possibilities that it holds, of all the opportunities that he's giving, of all of the creative things that are being developed in my life by the Spirit of God who lives in me. We begin to see all of that positive. Then our lives get filled with something called thanksgiving. We naturally want to say, thank you, God. Thank you for my life. Every morning, Jenny and I pray in bed together. In the weekdays, I bring her a cup of, cup of coffee, and on the weekends, she brings me a cup of coffee. It's a good deal, really. And we sit in bed together, and we pray, and nearly every day we say, Lord, thank you for the lives you've given us. Thank you for our home. Thank you for our, our family. Thank you for the health in our bodies. Thank you, Lord. And we just thank God because we are so grateful. It's the gratitude attitude, and it helps to rehearse the joy. That's what re- rejoice means that. Did you know that? To rejoice means to rehearse your joy. Remind yourself of what you've got to be thankful for. Secondly, the second joy bringer is people. You know, God's not made us to live an isolated life. When he made Adam, he said it's not good that he's alone. And so he made Eve. Now, some of us husbands think that was the worst thing he ever did. But actually, it was the best thing God did because we aren't meant to be alone. We're meant to be surrounded by people. And even if we're single, we're part of his family. If we're divorced or single parents or on our own, if we're bereaved, you know, God intends us to be part of his family. And family and friends are part of the way he's designed us to live. And I love that quote from Mother Therese that Jenny put up earlier. The problem with the world is that we draw the circle of our family too small. And that's typical of our culture today. In Western culture, we live in these little isolated pockets of nuclear family or dysfunctional family or on our own. And God never intended that. He wants us to be part of a wider family and to experience the joy of what a healthy family looks like. Most of us, many of us, haven't grown up in that kind of family, but he wants us to have it in his family. And the body of Christ, for all of its quirks, for all of its failings, can be a fantastic family. One of the things that uh, you know Jenny and I love to do over the years is to, to open up our meal table to other people. And I want to suggest it's actually one of the best ways you can experience the extended family that God wants you to live in, is to open up your meal table. It was characteristic of the early church in Acts 2, as they shared their meals together with gladness and simplicity. So it hasn't got to be a, a hog roast every time you have your neighbors round, okay? It can just be jacket potatoes with a filling or beans on toast. It can be simple, but it's with gladness and sim- Do you know that word gladness actually means extreme joy? Did you know that? We can share our meals together with extreme joy and simplicity. I love it when uh, in the book of Nehemiah, when they'd finished the job, they'd rebuilt the walls and they read the word of God aloud and Ezra and Nehemiah called the people to a great feast. He said, go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks. That wouldn't go down well to today's advertising, would it? Rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. Don't be dejected or sad, for the joy of the Lord is 
your strength. And if you find making friends or being part of family difficult or something you feel like you want to grow into more, then use the meal table. Okay? Just find other people. You know the word for hospitality in scripture is xenophilia. It's the opposite of xenophobia. And xenophilia means the love of strangers. So don't just have all your, you know, the usual suspects around the table. Invite some strangers in. Invite some people you don't know very well, people who don't know Jesus. Invite them round your table and experience the joy of family and friends. It's part of the way God's wired us to be full of joy through people. There are three things that the Gospels say Jesus came doing. Okay. The Son of Man, it says, the Son of Man, one, came to serve. Okay, that's a big one. Second one is, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. That's another big one. We're going to come to those in a moment. But do you know what the third one is? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. I love that. You know, of all the profound statements the gospel could have said about the Son of Man, one of them was that he came eating and drinking. Let's be like Jesus. It's, it is said that in Luke's gospel, for virtually the entire gospel, Jesus was either on his way to a meal, at a meal, or on his way from a meal somewhere else. He was always eating and drinking. It's because that's part of the joy-filled life. He has called us to. Number three. Number three. Another joy bringer is to have a life full of purpose. Of purpose. A life full of purpose. And those two phrases, the Son of Man came to serve, came to seek and save that which was lost. You get something of the purpose that Jesus came with. We, He announces it in Luke chapter 4. When he stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth, he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. That's his purpose. I've been anointed to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the downtrodden and proclaim the year of God's favor. That was his purpose. And when he gets to the end of that chapter, Luke 4, the disciples, he's now in Capernaum and they, they want to keep him in Capernaum because they've seen him do some miracles and he's been a great teacher with them. They say, stay here. And he says, no, I must go to other towns and cities to preach this message, this gospel of the kingdom, for I was called, I was sent for this purpose. Jesus had a purpose-filled life and it was part of the reason he was the most joy-filled person imaginable. His life was full of purpose. And when he prays in John 17, at the end of his life, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, I thank you, Lord, that I've completed the work you gave me to do. So he knew what his mission was and he knew when it was completed. Would we ever know if we'd completed the work he gave us to do? What's really interesting, I think, is if you look at Jesus' life, it says he was sent for this purpose. It says he was, Son of Man came to serve, he came to seek and save that which was lost. 
if you actually look at what he achieved at the end of his life, some people might say he didn't achieve very much. What he did achieve was raising a bunch of disciples. In fact, they weren't just disciples, they were disciple makers, weren't they? The 12, the 17. And so it's no surprise that when he passes his commission, his sentness on to the disciples, what does he say to them in Matthew 28? He says, you're going to get the same purpose that I had. And now I'm phrasing it slightly differently because I'm sending you into all the world, into all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and with you always to the end of the age. His commission was passed on to the disciples to go and make disciples. And because those disciples were called to go and do the same thing again, what he was actually calling them to do was to go and make disciple makers. Now, I want to offer this to you as a plumb line for your life. Am I fulfilling God's purpose for my life? Because, you know, your calling may be to the marketplace, to the workplace, to the neighborhood, to charitable community volunteer organizations. It might be to your street. It might be to your family. It might be to other nations. But wherever God has called you, to whomever God has called you, and with whomever God has called you, those are all three questions be good to ask sometime. It's always with this in mind to go and make disciples wherever you are. That's his purpose for the disciples he left behind and every generation of disciples since then. That's a plumb line for our lives today. And finally, his presence. Psalm 16 says, in your presence is what? Fullness of joy. I've left the best till last because, you know, we are called to live in his presence. When he commissioned his disciples, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. Whatever you're going through, wherever you are, whoever you're with, whatever the trial and difficulty, I will never leave you. And in my Presence is fullness of joy. And so you need to figure out what do I need to do to live in God's presence? You know, for me, it's like breathing. And I like to take a deep breath at the beginning of the day. I like to spend half an hour in worship and prayer with God. I like to dig into the scriptures with others in the house. I like to pray with Jenny. And at the beginning of the day, it's like... <gasps> Filling myself with the pneuma, the breath of God, the Spirit of God, by investing in that time with Him. That's a really important part of me, living in His presence. But you know, if we just took a deep breath in at the beginning of the day, and tried to live just on that one breath, it wasn't, isn't going to work, is it? We have a rhythm of breathing through the day. What is it that you can do to create that rhythm of connecting with God and his presence through the day. I wish we had time to explore that.
And so I want to leave you with two questions as we finish here. The two questions are on the screen. What has struck you from all that we've said this morning and what do you want to do about it? Jesus said the wise man heard the word of God and did it. He was the one that built his house on the rock. So we need to hear what God is saying. What struck you? What do you think God might be trying to get your attention on this morning? And what are you going to do about it? And in a moment, I'd like you just to turn to someone near you and just ask you what struck you? And can you think of anything that you might want to do about that in the coming days and weeks? So the three joy blockers, anxiety, anger, and alternatives, and the four joy bringers, positivity, renewed mind, people round the table, purpose, making disciple makers, and presence, enjoying him with us all the time. Father, would you just speak to us now as we speak to one another, speak to our hearts, and help us to know what you're saying what we can do about it in Jesus' name. Amen. So just take, literally we've got two minutes, just take those two minutes with the person next to you and just ask that question. What struck you? What are you going to do about it?